0: Michael, uh, tomorrow I want you to give Dr. Lyons a call. He's a wonderful therapist, a good friend of
1: mine. But what do I need him for?
0: <sighs> you're my doctor. I'm afraid I have to withdraw from your case.
1: Oh, what, now that I'm a loony on the loose, you're throwing me to the lions?
0: <sighs> it's not like that at all, Michael. You see, I've, I've been having these feelings for you. Feelings that a doctor should not be having for her patient. <laughs> you mean you don't like me? <clears throat> Quite the opposite.
1: You mean I don't like you?
0: (laughs) Chris Gelser here with Matt Howell. On this episode of The First Run, Matt and I, well listen folks, pack a lunch and stay the day. Not only are we going to be discussing Denis Villeneuve's Dune, a film that we've been waiting for for quite a while, Matt. It's finally here. And good news, they announced they are moving forward with a sequel. But not only are we discussing Dune, not only are we continuing our body horror marathon with The Incredible Mounting Man. I think one of the few films, Matt, we've done that actually was the subject of a Mystery Science Theater episode. and We'll have to see if that was fair or not. We're also going to talk about a couple films that we had watched over the last few weeks that weren't really going to make the show, but we decided to make time for you, the listener. The people. So we'll be discussing also The Last Duel, Ridley Scott's latest film, as well as Naomi Rapace in Lamb, an unusual film. And of course, we'll be closing out the episode with the return of Call It. And don't forget, too, we'll fill in what's coming up on Physical Media, featuring your straight-to-DVD and streaming picks of the week. Whew, that's a lot to get through. So let's start everything off then with a clip from Dune. Father, I'd like to ask to join Duncan Idaho on a scout mission to Arrakis tomorrow. I've studied the Fremen language, I'd be an asset. Out of the question, they'll travel in a few weeks to Arrakis like the rest of us. I've been training my whole life. What is the point if I'm not allowed to you face know some why, actual ball. risk? You're the future of House
1: Atreides. And grandfather fought bulls for sport. Yes look where that got him. I need you by my side. When we get to Arrakis, we'll face enormous danger. What danger? The Fremen? The
0: desert? Political danger. The Great Houses look to us for leadership. And this threatens the Emperor. By taking Arrakis from the Harkonnens and making it ours, he sets the stage for a war
1: which would weaken both houses. But if we hold firm and tap the true power of Arrakis, we could be stronger than ever.
0: What does that mean?
1: Mining spice, keeping
0: the Fremen in their place? We'd be no better than Harkonnen. No. By making an alliance with the Fremen. That's what I've sent Duncan Idaho to arrange. I think, Matt, I may have one of my new favorite character names of all time. (laughs) Duncan. Idaho. I know It opens up so many possibilities, too. So I have a lot of questions for you, Matt, because you are familiar with the source material. I believe you haven't read it in quite a while, but I know you've reread at least the original book, correct? Right.
1: Correct. I haven't read any of the sequels, though. All right. That's fair.
0: So why don't you just... I'm begging you to help me and understand. What is Doom all about?
1: Sure. All right, so it's a little over 8,000 years in the future. Humanity has spread throughout the galaxy. And basically, the form of government is a feudal system. There's an emperor that uh, rules uh, the human empire. And there are many great houses that um, are basically like noble houses. One of those houses, House Atreides, has been given control of the planet Arrakis, which is the most important planet in the empire, in the entire galaxy because it is the sole source of the spice melange, which is a um, substance that is a hallucinogen, will extend your life and youthful vitality, but it also makes uh, interstellar travel possible. Um, So without it, the empire just doesn't function. Um, Basically, the House Atreides is going to go take it over from their longtime rivals, House Harkonnen, and um, yeah, Stuff happens from there, focused on the young heir to House Atreides, Paul. Excellent. So let me ask you, that
0: that helps me with one of my big questions, right? Is that these are descendants then of people, of Earthlings, right? We're not dealing with aliens here.
1: Yes, these are in the Dune universe, you know, humanity originated on Earth. So every human you see in this is, you know, a distant descendant from Earth,
0: Okay, well, that helps clarify things a little bit for
1: me, so that's good.
0: (laughs) But I want to know, because everybody else seems to have these mostly pretty cool names. I mean, Lady Jessica is pretty standard, but Duke Mm Leto, Gurney Halleck, Mm -hmm. Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, Glissol Rabban, Tafir Hawat, and then our hero is Paul. That's right. (laughs) Is there some kind of significance for that outside of maybe like any biblical
1: reference? What is, uh, does it mean something? Because I got to admit, I was a little underwhelmed by Paul. By Paul? Yeah, I guess there's all kinds of references in Dune. I mean, lots of mythological references, religious uh, references, obviously, you know, a lot of Islamic and Abrahamic religion mm-hmm. type references. It really runs the gamut. I, I will say this, um, I'll put this out there. Frank Herbert, who wrote the the Dune series, was a big proponent on the benefits of psilocybin mushrooms. So take that for what you will. But I think he just wanted to make it simple for his first uh, for his first protagonist. Fair enough. I think that that works for me.
0: So Matt Dune was first adapted by David Lynch, right? Though I think was it prior to that was Yudarowski tried to do yeah, his version, y- which totally kind of just collapsed. And it was yes. I would still love to see that film. There's a great little documentary about that called Yudarowski's Dune. But then the property was then done by Lynch. And then it was a, what, a sci-fi channel TV movie? Yeah, right. As well really as series. I think some of the sequels were filmed there as well, at least one of them mm-hmm. uh, for, te- for television. But now I think this is it, right? This is supposedly going to be the granddaddy adaptation of all of them by really an A-list director who has given us some fantastic films. Yeah, you your Blade Runner 2049s, your Arrivals, your Sicarios, right? Just some... Top shelf stuff. Now, we have the technology to really do the effects right. We got some money here. So how did Dune turn out for you? Did it meet all your expectations? Is it the grand epic you were hoping to see?
1: Yes. I was thoroughly impressed with this film. Um, They take a very dense, heady um, sci-fi novel that's really a a child of the 60s and a lot of its thinking and a lot of its um, kind of imagery – And he somehow manages to make this thing visually gorgeous. It is incredibly compelling from a a visual standpoint and still manages to wrangle a lot of the story of Dune into a, a two and a half hour film that obviously I was completely riveted to while I was watching it. Now, it's not completely perfect. He does make some choices that I agree with. Other ones... I don't but I think overall I think this is the best we can hope for, at least with the, with what we know today. Fifty years from now, if we're getting another version of Dune with even better version, that could be cool as well. But just by the sheer fact we're getting a second one, I think this is a, a great setup. And I think it's it's a fantastic film.
0: I think yeah, I love Villeneuve's confidence about having part one beyond the title card right of the film as it starts. Right. So good for him. And as we said in the opening of the show, it has been greenlit. I think we have an interesting perspective here between the two of us, Matt, because I am not really familiar with the source material at all. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any. I haven't seen any of the films. I haven't read the books. I'm, oh, you mean, never you saw, saw Lynch's version either. No. Okay. I'd always I always heard it was really bad, so mm-hmm. I never caught up with it. Okay. What are your feelings on Lynch's
1: film? Are you a fan of that one? Uh, It's definitely interesting. There are things in it that are really interesting that I, I liked. But Dune, if you've read the story, there's a lot of internal monologuing. And Lynch decides to actually portray that on screen. There's a lot of whispering thoughts kind of thing. Whereas... Villeneuve kind of jettisons that completely, I think, smartly. Uh, But there are some really interesting, whacked-out visuals from Dune. It's just a lot of it is hampered by the fact that they're trying to cram this huge novel into two hours, and they're limited by the effects and and what was capable of being done at the time.
0: Yeah, maybe I'll have to catch up with it at some point. I don't know, though, if I need to, Matt, because I felt that this Dune was a grand epic that doesn't feel that way to me. This actually left me a little lacking. I think once the film gets rolling, it's good, but there's this long stretches in the beginning when we're doing our world building that I think are interesting, but there's some decisions that he makes that I think just don't really work for me. I think the dream sequences is, and I get that Paul right is he's supposed to possibly be the savior and who kind of is able to what unite the houses or defeat the evil and bring peace to the galaxy. From what I understand doing research for this show, that takes a very different turn in the latest in the later books. Mm-hmm. But some of the stuff like when he's having these dreams of Zendaya's character, those came across to me like perfume ads. Right. And, like the way he shoots
1: her, it's like Zendaya. <laughs> desert sands the new scent from zendaya yes exactly how it looked to me and it was
0: it just it just felt kind of the whole thing felt kind of inorganic and like that there's a this film kind of keeps me at arm's length that there's a distance between me and this experience the entire time and i'm able to kind of overcome that but i'm wondering if it's just listen it's gorgeous it's rousing at times i think Villeneuve knows that, uh, like, the, this is the film that he thinks he was born to make. But there's just, as I said, this distance with it that I can't seem to overcome. I think the world building is excellent, the effects are top shelf, but there's a lot of, I don't know, how do I? I'm having trouble describing it, Matt. But it, it, like, there's just long kind of stretches of looks and shots of the deserts and mm. trying to build up scope to mm-hmm. create this epic feel that just felt kind of hollow to me
1: yeah yeah so i think the two things the two main issues i had with this are are this so one and i think they both kind of tie into what you're saying for as gorgeous as this thing is and as, as competent and as confident as villain the is is putting this together I feel like this could have used a touch more Lynch. I think it there are parts of it that are a little too like these dream sequences that you're talking about are a little too straightforward. I think they're a little too workmanlike. I think they could use a little bit more surreality, surreal especially from what I understand you know, happens towards the ends of the series as a whole, where I won't spoil it for anybody. But for I've never read it, but from what I've heard, it just goes into some whacked out places. So I think there should be a little more Lynch in this Villeneuve kind of stuff, or maybe Giger from Jodorowsky or something. But mm-hmm. there is something that's a little bit missing. But my major complaint with this film is it very much feels incomplete. Like it doesn't. It feels like it's a preamble to the rest of the story. It. it it doesn't feel like a movie into in it itself. It's basically the first half and it very much feels like a first half. So it leaves you wanting a lot more because as the stuff really starts to get cool, then it's over. And now we have to wait two years until we get the next one. And I think that's the big complaint I have with
0: it. I think that's fair. It does mostly kind of build up, you're right, for the next film. It's basically an hour and 45 minutes or so of prep for what's going right. to come for, for the conclusion for the last third and really the next film. But it does, it, it does feel kind of strangely neutered to me. And I wonder if that's interesting that if it needed a little more Lynchian or Jodorowsky wackiness, something to, I don't know, just add something to it. It's just so sterile to me. At yeah.
1: times. So I know one of my, one of the things I was really looking forward to seeing, and, I, and, I'll, and when you watch the Lynch film, I'll be interested to hear your take. So, There's a scene in the book early on and in the Lynch film where a representative of the guild of navigators shows up and talks to the, the emperor, which we don't see in this and the navigator guild, he shows up in this giant, like fish tank filled with like smoke spice, like vaporized spice. And he comes out looking like a cross between like a hippo and a human and a jellyfish floating in this thing. And he's just, it's the most whacked out thing that you've ever seen. And Villeneuve completely leaves it out. Like he just doesn't put it in there. And I looked it up and I guess he intentionally did that because he thought it would be too weird. So I feel like he, he wanted to make the, he he quoted this to the, the designer who wanted to put in the navigator scene that, he wanted he didn't want the movie to feel too big. He wanted it to feel more manageable and I think that might have been a mistake. Because there's a lot of stuff like that in this that are just absolutely bonkers out there that they just don't touch on here.
0: Yeah, I mean there's a moment where there's this weird kind of spider person thing. Yeah, it's creepy. Really disturbing and weird and uh, I love that. I thought it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's like but that's like the only time something like that ever happens and I thought it was just a conscious choice by Villeneuve not to reveal the emperor until the next film Mm because he doesn't show up at all
1: in this movie Mm -mm, he doesn't and yet another big missing piece is Fade Rautha who is uh you know Raban the beast's brother and the the baron's um nephew who's basically the Harkonnen or sorry Harkonnen analog to Paul who was played by Sting in the Lin- in the Lynch version he does not appear at all in this film he does appear very early in the book but then he basically disappears for like halfway through it so I understand why he chose not to put him in there but I feel like you're kind of missing that foil to Paul because you could see the the other side of what Paul could be in in fade
0: oh interesting Maybe we'll see more of that. I would assume so in the next film, then.
1: Yeah, I, I would assume you have to have fade. I don't see how you cannot have fade as the the mirror image of Paul or the the dark side of Paul that's out there. Hmm. That's cool.
0: So a couple of things I just wanted to mention
1: uh, quickly. I
0: thought it was really fascinating that I guess AI. There's no
1: computers in this because AI was banned in their society at some point. Right. Yeah. So back in back in the day, there's there's basically the typical AI revolt type of thing. So they kind of overcorrect and not allow any kind of computers whatsoever.
0: Hmm. And I like some of the designs of things like the, the what is it? The ships that they fly on the planet basically look like dragonflies, I guess, in oh, yeah, a way and operate that way.
1: Yeah, the ornithopters are cool.
0: Yeah. And I think the uh, the thing everybody Dune fans really looking for is the big sandworms. I think that is mm-hmm. done exceptionally well as well as, yeah. as in
1: effect. Yeah, that was very cool. Yes, very cool.
0: Um, one other thing too that I'm currently struggling with, I think I liked it, but I'm not sure. Is Zimmer's score? There's a little Scalzo score corner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels at, this time, at times like it's just dripping with self-importance.
1: Yeah, I you agree. Know,
0: I think there's some stuff that I liked about it, but it's so obvious, and it, you know, just large type stuff all the time, and no surprises really. Well, I shouldn't say that. Some bagpipes show up at one point, I guess. But outside of that, it's just, it was typical Zimmer. I think I still may have liked it more than his No Time to Die score, which I really have to revisit. I think I've barely listened to that. But again, if it's exactly what you expect it to be for uh, Zimmer and this type of film. And if you love those heavy, drawn out kind of drum things, then uh, I guess this is a score for you. I'm hearing you're not a fan.
1: Yeah. I mean, there were parts of it that I really liked. I did like the bagpipes, I did like that kind of. Um and the Car planet that like weird chanting guy i thought that was really kind of like he sounded like a human didgeridoo Mm. i thought that was pretty cool uh but like this especially like the stuff that's in the trailer the kind of um i don't know how else to put it that kind of like tribally deserty kind of singing thing it's the same kind of like vocal inflection it's the same thing every time it shows up so it gets really old really fast there's very little variation to it and i I just thought it was kind of cliched in a lot of parts and 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 like you said, a lot of it is a lot of uh, those kind of heavy droning notes. So there are parts of it I really liked, but overall, I thought it was, I thought it was subpar. Hmm.
0: And I think, Matt, you and I had a similar experience at the theater. Now, I saw this in the Dolby. What did you check hmm. it out in?
1: I saw it in the Dolby, even though it was a pain in the ass to, to fit it into my schedule. But I did go see it in the Dolby, so I was deafened by the end of the movie.
0: So there was this weird issue I had with Rebecca Ferguson's character where, and we had talked about this off air previously, and I think you described it perfectly as her kind of breathless whispering. Mm-hmm. And half the time, if not, no, I'd say 90% of her dialogue, I could not hear what she was saying at all.
1: Yeah, I had the same problem. I she Between her accent and her delivery and just kind of hushed tones she's doing it covered with, it, it's usually some kind of, drone from the score going, you couldn't understand half of what she was saying. So I was able to rewatch
0: this at home, thankfully, on the HBO Max and throw on the subtitles. Mm -hmm. And uh, thankfully, we were able to finally figure out what the hell she was saying half the time. (laughs) Thankfully, it didn't impact. I was basically, through the context clues, able to figure out what she was talking about, really. But still, weird. And then I had another issue too where there was like a pronounced echo at one point in the film with their dialogue, and I was wondering mm. maybe if it was an effect that Villanueva had done with how their I voices honestly, are.
1: Sorry, I didn't. I didn't notice. I didn't catch that.
0: Well, it was only. I realized later on that it was only for a certain time. So I think what happened is I got a blown out speaker at my gotcha. Dolby Theater. Gotcha. Okay. So I going to have to talk to them about that. Yeah, write a letter. Jeez, I'm going to go all Karen, What's the <laughs> male version of a Karen about that? I Kevin. That. You're sure, Kevin? I'm going to go all Kevin on them. <laughs> Sorry, so,
1: Kevin's out there. That's
0: right. So, a couple last minute things. I know a lot of people are happy. We got to see Oscar or Isaac naked again. This seems to be the year of uh, Isaac's nakedness. So, good for the ladies and the fellas, whatever you're into. Uh, I think Villain the Webb's world building is excellent in this. A lot of fascinating machines, planets, space stuff, war, all that stuff um, was really cool to look at. Um, from what I understand, that the book really subverts the white savior trope as the story progresses. And I'm hoping that he's able to make that second or actually the third film,
1: which I think Mm -hmm. is,
0: I won't say what happens because I just found out because I was doing research there. I don't want to spoil it for people, but things really take a turn in that third book. And I'm really curious to see if they actually run down that route, but that Herbert's whole thing is basically there's a warning about not blindly following a charismatic leader. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I think it'll be interesting then to see where this series goes from here. And in the end, Matt, I think I ended up giving Dune a B. It was yeah. it was lots of spectacle, interesting stuff. But as I said, I was kind of underwhelmed by it at times as well, as the, as I said, the sterileness. Of of some of the proceedings. So I'm going with a B. Where are
1: you? Yeah. I think that's fair. I think I'm gonna go a lot higher. I'm gonna go in A minus. Um, I think my perception is colored as being just a fan of the and familiar with the the background material. So I can kind of see the groundwork he's laying. Um, so I'm kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt of what's coming next. It'll be interesting to see to revisit that grade in 2023 to see if it was if it still holds up after watching part two, Dune.
0: There you go. It's it did go away, you know, by the, the, the last act of the film, but I'm all set on any more of these Zendaya
1: perfume ads.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> she's there it. now, so
1: hopefully he won't have, he won't be dreaming of her. He'll be dreaming of something else. All right. That would be wonderful. I would really appreciate that.
0: You got a chance to see Dune and our good buddies Paul and Zendaya. Shoot us an email of feedback at thefirstrun.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on all things Dune. Let's go ahead and keep rolling, Matt, and talk a little bit about The Last Duel. I will not be patronized
1: by this squire who lies about court waiting to be fated with gift upon gift upon gift and risks nothing. Nothing he may acquire more property in this world. Find more favor, eat more, drink more, bed more, and otherwise call himself a man of arms. But in this hall, and any other, in my company, he will call me Sir. 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 Indeed, good sir. Enjoy your time in Paris, Sir Jean.
0: So, Matt, Ridley Scott returns. Sometimes when I watch his films, I'm thinking, this man is an unparalleled genius. And then I'll see something like Exodus, Gods and Kings, which is a dumpster fire. An absolute, just horrible, horrible film. Well, Scott returns now with a film written by Nicole... Hall of Center, as well as Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, who star in the movie, in The Last Duel. This is a historical drama based sort of on true events uh, about a, a young woman who claims to have been raped by the best her husband's best friend and a squire named Jacques Legree, played, of course, by uh, Adam Driver. Big, big vehicle, Matt, I think, too, for Jodie Comer, who is... On Killing Eve, which is a show I haven't seen, she was really kind of fun in Free Guy, which is a movie we did earlier this year. But I think now she's busting down the doors, Matt, in the Last Duel. So this is a this drama, as I said, is Matt Damon basically attempting to seek revenge the only way he can by challenging Driver's character to the Last Duel. Historical drama stuff, Matt. Originally, when this film was being was, was kind of first launched and heralded, people were talking about, they're like, it's kind of a gross subject matter. Is this something we really need to make a movie out of? And at one point, too, Affleck was set to play Legree, we'll then switched to uh, play the, uh, what is he, a Count? Yes, the Count Pierre Delacont. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So what are your thoughts Did on you? The Last Duel? Do we have another just a riveting historical drama or is this another exodus gods and kings
1: uh usually with your questions i'm going to split the difference really i mean so this is based off of a true event this is this is this really happened i mean these two knights um one the the wife of one of the knights um accused a squire of um raping her and the only way that he could see justice done was her husband declared to have a trial by combat, which is obviously the thinking being that God will cause the guilty party to lose. um, So therefore they're guilty and they leave it through through that because there was no way to prove it legally in the courts at the time. Um, So this is the last sanctioned duel in France of that type. So it, it is it is based on a true event for a lot of this. I liked, you know, kind of how they were setting this up. I, they do kind of a, a Rashomon type storytelling conceit um, where similar or same events are told from different perspectives. So it starts with uh, De Carrouge's perception of events um, where he's kind of like a a put upon, you know, kind devoted husband who's very loyal to his king and he's just basically sometimes his passions get the better of him as far as what he does that affects how he you know is perceived at court but he's generally honorable and um you know is a devoted and loving husband then you kind of switch to Legris's perception or and it's shown that he's more petulant he's more quick to anger um Le is you know, he a, a, tries to be a stalwart friend behind the scenes and, and champion his causes um, and that it's no fault of his own, that he kind of takes over, you know, pieces of what de Carrouge wants or expects. And then you get Lady Marguerite's uh, perception and it's a completely different set of perceptions, which I thought was all very, very interesting. And I think this isn't the best kind of medieval historical or at least the most exciting historical drama that I've ever seen, but I was really into it for most of it. And I thought it was... The choices that are made, I think, are pretty solid, as long as you can, you know, buy the fact that Ben Affleck and and Matt Damon are all supposed to be, you know, French noble men who can't even pull off an English accent. Um, but you know, it, it, other than that, if you put that up to the side, I thought it was a pretty solid film.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love the fact that I think Scott at some point must have been like, accents be damned, just do what you can do. <laughs> You know, yeah, Affleck particularly is just uh, l- listen. He is in w- at some points the worst and the absolute best thing about this film. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think he really kind of reclaims his standing as a viable kind of actor that you want, just a watchable guy that you want to see. Because he, I want to tell you, man, he absolutely bodies his line deliveries like WWE style sometimes, and it, it's <laughs> it's a joy to watch him just loving every minute of playing this character it's a blast it's mm-hmm. really one of the most fun experiences i've had in the cinema this year is watching ben affleck deliver these lines in this film absolutely wonderful mm-hmm. but uh yeah i think i love how like you said scott panels this film where we have our three different perspectives i'll rush style but i love how he introduces Lydia marguerite's tale right that unlike Rashomon, where everything is kind of up to your interpretation, in the end, he doesn't do that with you. He tells you exactly who's telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, I, I honestly got, it. when that little title card faded away, all but that one word stayed up there, honestly, I got like a little giddy about it. It was just like, oh, here we go. <laughs> you know, and it's uh, which a weird kind of, I guess, ex- experience to have considering the subject matter. (laughs) But I think it's a testament to Scott's storytelling uh, abilities. I really, he shows here at 83 years old, he has not lost uh, a step at all. And I think for me, this film, not only, listen, Affleck's a blast and a lot to watch and is a lot of fun to watch. But Comer, Comer is a revelation in this thing and she really elevates this film to another level, particularly when she finally gets to really shine in that third act when everything kind of shifts, right? And it, it goes from an interesting performance to a fascinating and riveting one at that point. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's, I don't I want to say fun watch, but it's a riveting historical ex- drama experience. And I, I could not take my eyes off the screen on this thing. It, it's really exceptionally well done. I will say, though, if you're ever called to be cast as a king in any kind of these kind of historical epics, I'm gonna say say no <laughs> because <laughs> they all these kings now all seem to be cast as these kind of bumbling, kind of cross, you know, interbred halfwits. Yeah. Nowadays, you know, it's it's just uh Anyway,
1: well, as you get further down the line from the one who conquered his way to being king, he's suddenly very. He's less and less uh, capable as you go along, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: Riveting drama stuff here, Matt. Um, if you're looking for a good adult medieval drama with a healthy dose of violence, I think this may be the film for you. And that's the key, I think. The hook for me wasn't the kind of riveting action and violence, though it's intermittent. It's the drama. It's hmm. the dynamics between Matt Damon and uh, you know his, Jean de his and, and Marguerite when he doesn't quite believe her, but he then he does, and but his drive to reclaim his wife's honor, right, is really had nothing to do with her. Right. He constantly feels inadequate and has to overcompensate. Really, this is kind of like the medieval toxic masculinity of the movie. <laughs> and Adam Driver, Jacques Legree, too, just who appears to be this noble, nice guy who is just a slime ball. Yeah. And when like when he says at one point what well, she offered the standard protests, you know, but we all knew what she really wanted type of a thing. Right. Just all that kind of stuff. Really just great stuff. Lots of fun to watch. I ended up giving the last duel a B as well. Uh, I know it may seem weird where I sounded kind of down on Dune, up with duel, but the same grade. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I... Really, you know, that's fair. I'm going to go B-plus then. I'm updating my
1: score. I'm going B-plus on The Last Duel. I really enjoyed this. What about you? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go B-plus on The Last Duel as well. I thought it was a very solid, um, effective historical drama. Now, would you consider this dadtainment? Would you put it into our own special uh, genre here? It's right on the edge. Yeah.
0: I mean, I you, I think you can make an argument for it. I think there's enough there to get it outside of those strict boundaries, but ugh, I think you can make it's the argument. It's your
1: close last duel. You're walking the line. Exactly. What would you do? Would you do that? Um, for a normal, normally I would say no, but I kind of want to say yes because this is the kind of film my dad likes. So <laughs> it seems very, it seems very dad payment to me.
0: Yeah, it's like I said, it's it's right on the line. It's right yeah. on the line for that, but I don't know.
1: But I think it's, it elevates itself above that.
0: I think so. Oh, I think so. Yeah, so The Last Duel. Come for Ben Affleck, stay for Jodie Comer, and uh, <laughs> you will not be disappointed. If you've seen The Last Duel, shoot us an email at feedback at run.com. I really can't wait to rewatch this one, man. When this shows up on HBO or wherever it shows up, mm-hmm. uh, I will be checking this one out. I'll definitely be buying this one. I did rather enjoy it. Oh, nice. All right, Matt, Let's get weird. Spend a few minutes and talk about Lamb. That sounds creepy. Matt, I'm tagging you in. Why don't you go ahead and tell people what is lamb or as I like to call it, what the F the movie. Yeah. What is lamb
1: all about? So lamb follows a an Icelandic pair of farmers, a married couple um, who are shepherds and potato farmers. One day while they're out, um, gathering and giving birth to the spring lambs. One of their sheep gives birth to a spoiler, although I guess you can figure it out, a human lamb hybrid that they decide to take on um, as their own child and, and raise as this miracle. And just weirdness ensues as only a Scandinavian type film can give you.
0: Yeah, so I was looking forward to this one, too. You had a chance to see this uh, before me. And I want to start basically saying, like, what a year. We have Tatan, Malignant, and now Lamb. Now, Annette's out there, which I don't think either of us have seen yet. Have you caught up with Annette yet? I have not, no. All right. I think it's still on Prime. That is supposed to be another crazy, weird one. But, man. Matt, this is another film that I I don't know if, if enjoyed is the right way to put it. But it is a magical horror film about kind of loss and love and what it means to be family. And I think that the director, Wadomar Johansson, does really just kind of a fantastic job with the slow burn kind of reveal of this film and what's really happening. Where he teases little things throughout the whole movie. Until we finally get our conclusion, that is like a brick through plate glass, and I'm curious where you, how you feel about that. Did did that ending impact your overall enjoyment of the film at all? Did it elevate things, or we are like, this is ridiculous?
1: Yeah. So this thing is incredibly surreal. It is like the the if it makes any sense to say it's like a grounded dream like you have the practicality of an ikea in the middle of a lynchian it's like you're in an ikea on an lsg trip is what this basically film is and it's hard to say i enjoyed it it's more like i just kind of surrendered to it and just like went along with the experience and Mm. by the time the kind of I will guess we'll call it a conclusion because it just kind of happens so fast. And then the movie's over. I was like, okay, that fits. Like, is there some kind of cultural significance to this? Is this some kind of folktale thing I should be aware of because I'm, but I'm not, because I'm not Icelandic. I don't know. I never bothered to go look, but I was completely on board with it because at one point I was thinking something completely else and I'm kind of glad it didn't end that way. But yeah, I, I was on board with it. The logic of it, fits as well as anything else in this film, that there's just this lamb child that after some initial misgivings, people just kind of come to accept, which I guess you just got to be along the ride for, right? I think that's exactly
0: right. And I don't know if I've experienced a greater sense of horror than when Peter, who is the, uh, the brother, right, of our father figure here, Goes to take the action that he eventually does not. Yeah. But I have not been filled with more dread this entire year than that walk out to the field. And the way they then smash cut to the next scene, it's weird, Matt, just how perfectly Johansson balances, like you say, this kind of waking kind of nightmare thing where you feel like, At any moment, the ground's going to get pulled out from underneath you. But then, in the next shot, you have this really loving, adorable, endearing moment.
1: Right. And
0: by keeping us kind of off balance the whole time, I think that makes the conclusion of the film so much more effective. And it's beautifully shot. There's a, a sadness in these expansive nature shots. They live in this area with this beautiful mountains, rolling fields. You know, lots of just gorgeous stuff. But then the the music that, under, that runs underneath it too just gives it this sadness. And when you get the little reveals of what's happened to this family as the film progresses, it's just heartbreaking and sad. And then, but you're kind of waiting for the shoe to drop the entire time. It is really an interesting and unique experience. This has been probably... My favorite f- film year since, good Lord, what was, I don't know, I, you know I'm going to have to look into this and give it back, get back to you, but it's been a long time since I've seen this many films that I've gotten this much sheer enjoyment out of, mm-hmm. just weirdness, something really just different, experimentation. It's been a wonderful year for that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's, it's definitely a film that you take the ride on. And I don't know. I think it's the right type of weird for me. I can see myself uh, picking this up and adding it to the collection. It's <laughs> just something you revisit every so often just to kind of experience and see what you pick up along the way that you may have missed the first time. Because you're just so on edge, just waiting for something to happen. So who do you recommend this to? Like, how do you do that? What do you, what's your elevator
0: uh, pitch on why somebody should see Lamb?
1: yeah i don't know i guess i'd have to think of some some kind of equivalence i'm like do you like the the kind of weird nordicness of midsummer but you want to get something even more surreal and out there than this might be for you kind of thing with Um, a lot of heart yeah with a lot of heart with a lot of inner workings in your horror movie um (laughs) Yeah, I, I guess you would have to kind of come up with some kind of loose analogs and see what people like and if kind of pitch it as, kind of mash all those things together and then you might just have what you want.
0: Yeah, is it like a, I, I'm part of me going to two, is this even really a horror film? Is it more of like a dark family fable? Is yeah, a, see, that's the
1: thing. I don't even know if this is a horror film. Like you, like you said, it kind of, it keeps you on edge for so long, but I only think that works once because then you know, when things are going to happen or not happen as the case may be, it almost seems like it's more of a, that's kind of, I want to look into some Icelandic folktales because it almost seems like it's supposed to be some kind of parable. Right. And it, it seems yeah. like it's a fairy tale and like a modern fairy tale. It doesn't really s- strike me as a, as a, a horror film. Yeah. Cause Johansson
0: seems to focus more and I think that's what gets you hooked as a viewer on the family dynamic of the three of them mm-hmm. more so than he is. He's not doesn't feel as interested in as setting up the horror elements. It's just it's so cleverly done that it's always out there in the background, right, waiting. Like, but the core of the film, the heart of the film, is still this kind of odd makeshift family. I don't know. It's just weird and endearing and sad and terrifying and fascinating
1: stuff. Matt, I gave yeah. Lamb a B. B? Um, man, I, I'm, I'm going higher than you. I gave it a B plus. Look at you. Mm-hmm. All right. You're blowing
0: me out of the water today.
1: Look at you. I know. What can I say? I'm, I'm great and easy.
0: So Lamb is currently in the theaters. It's down to like one showing a day if you're lucky. I think by the time this show posts, it may not even be available unfortunately, but
1: yeah, especially with two horror films coming out this, this weekend. So it might get pushed off to the side.
0: Yeah. So you'll have to catch up with it on demand, which we think you should, if you're, you have that particular event that Matt and I have as well. And if you're listening to the show, I'm assuming you do. All right. We're finally there, Matt. Let's talk about what's coming up on physical media, this upcoming Tuesday, November 2nd. This Matt one, this, I, I'm telling you, this is probably still in my top 10 of the year. We'll see where it ends up, if it if it ends up making the cut. But few films this year have hit me on an emotional level as much as this one.
1: I'm looking for a truffle pig. I don't, I, I, I don't understand. I just want to know about the pig.
0: Tell him who you are. Come on, tell him.
1: Oh, my God. Uh, May I? Uh, How are you? My God, you've been off the scene for what, uh, 10 years? 15. Really? Okay. I thought you would. um,
0: Well, I mean, the time is very. uh, Sure. Yeah. So Matt, Nick Cage comes back and just reclaims his crown as one of the greatest living actors of his generation in Pig include a making of featurette and some deleted scenes. Matt, are you are going to be picking up pig? Cause I,
1: I definitely am. Yeah. I don't know. I think if it hits the right price point, I feel like pig is going to be widely available for streaming for a long time. So I don't know if I'll be in any rush to go pick it up.
0: You got to support though, Matt, you got to support. If you want to see more films like pig, you got to buy it. Mm. It goes out for all of you f- listeners out there. Nine days is being released as well. This is a story of a reclusive man who conducts a series of interviews with human souls for a chance to be born. I heard this is actually supposed to be pretty good too. We have now been able to catch up with it for the show. Music Box is releasing Emma. A couple deals with the aftermath of an adoption, excuse me is the word you're looking for Chris, adoption, that goes awry as her household falls apart. Includes select scene audio commentary by the choreographer. So I'm assuming there's dancing. A collector's booklet, a music video and more. Shudder and RLJ Entertainment are releasing The Banishing. It tells the story of the most haunted house in England. In the 1930s, a young reverend, his wife, and daughter move into a manor with a horrifying secret. Guy Pierce stars in Zone 415, set in the near future in a colony of the -the state-of-the-art humanoid robots. When its creator's daughter goes missing, he hires a private investigator, David Carmichael, to bring her home. David teams up with Jane, a highly advanced and self-aware AI, to track down the missing daughter. Chernobyl, 1986, this is actually a Russian take on the disaster. It's the first major Russian feature film about the aftermath of the explosion at Chernobyl when hundreds of people sacrifice their lives to clean up the site of the catastrophe. Magnet is releasing the east. A young Dutch soldier deployed to suppress post-World War II independence efforts in the Netherlands colonies of Indonesia finds himself torn between duty and conscience when he joins an increasingly ruthless commander's elite squad. Come True is being released by Shout and IFC. A teenage runaway takes part in a sleepy study, or a sleep study. I'm assuming the whole point is to make you sleepy. That becomes a nightmarish descent into the depths of her mind and a frightening examination of the power of dreams. The Hidden Life of Trees is a documentary first published as a book by Peter Wohlleben back in 2015, and he quickly entered the bestseller list. The forester wrote vividly about his experiences. Matt, the trees are able to communicate with each other, which is a thesis explored in the film. Electric Jesus, starring Judd Nelson and Brian Bumgartner from The Office. It's about an Alabama preacher's daughter who runs off with a touring Christian hair metal band during the summer of 1986. And then for you, Matt, Paul Patrol the Movie is being released on physical media. New to Blu-ray, Criterion is giving us Lestrada. Fellini's classic film, Gelsamina, is sold by her mother into the employ of Zampano, a brittle, strong man in a traveling circus. When Zampano encounters an old rival and a high-wire artist, the fool, his fury is provoked to its breaking point. A brand-new 4K restoration of that film, an alternate English dub soundtrack featuring the voices of Anthony Quinn and Richard Basehart, an audio commentary by 2003 by Peter Bondanella, an introduction by O3, or say from O3, from um, our good buddy Marty Scorsese, and more. Kino Lorber is releasing a bunch of films. The Spider-Woman Strikes Back, featuring a new audio commentary. The Secret of the Blue Room, with a new audio commentary. The Mystery of Edwin Drew, the Claude Rains film. The Mad Doctor, featuring Basil Rathbone. Homebodies, which gets a new 2K restoration from a 35mm print. And then Scorpion Releasing is going to go ahead and release Counterpoint, starring Charlton Heston and Maximilian Schell as well as Catherine Hayes and Leslie Nielsen. That one matters about a famous orchestra conductor who is captured by the Germans in World War II and is forced to put on private concerts for the Nazi generals. Also from Scorpion is number one, starring Charlton Heston again, this time with Jessica Walter and Bruce Dern. The story of Cat Catlin, played by Heston, a washed-up quarterback who turns to drink and women to solve his problems, but who soon discovers that his problems are just beginning. Matt, your straight-to-DVD pick of the week. I'm going to go with The Curse of Humpty Dumpty. Wendy is diagnosed with dementia, and so her daughters decide to take her back to the family home where they grew up to help her. However, while there, they come across a mysterious doll that Wendy seems to have strange memories of. The more Wendy remembers, the more she will learn the dark past of Humpty Dumpty. Matt, what should we be streaming this week?
1: So in honor of the upcoming Halloween holiday, I'm going to recommend one of the earliest. Um, I hesitate to call it slasher films but it is a a a fantastic kind of serial killer film from the early 60s it's called Peeping Tom where basically mm-hmm. a young man is a film developer by day and he also takes like boudoir racy pictures by night he also is making a documentary on the nature of fear and he decides the best way to get that that is to kill people and film it while it happens um it is a it is a a classic kind of proto slasher film and it's available on amazon prime for your streaming pleasure
0: that's a great pick matt good call all right Let's go ahead and continue our body horror marathon with, and I don't know, we'll see if this adjective is really that descriptive. The Incredible Melting Man. Steve escaped.
1: Oh, God. What are you
0: going to do? Did you get some crackers? I told you yesterday that we needed some crackers. Oh, I forgot.
1: I knew there was something. You
0: know, there's a a pad right by the phone, you know. You could write it down, too. Ted, what
1: about Steve?
0: So, we don't have any crackers?
1: Ted, Steve.
0: Steve? Matt, we got to get those crackers. (laughs) Incredible (laughs) melting man. Uh, Steve is an astronaut, Matt. He gets exposed to radiation during a space flight to Saturn. There's some kind of solar flare thing. I don't know, whatever. And now he's the only survivor of his crew. He gets back to Earth. And the only way he can survive is to eat human flesh. But the entire time, too, he is basically melting. His body is decomposing, basically, in real time. Ooh, Matt, The Incredible Melting Man, one of the, I think, only films we've ever done that actually was a Mystery Science Theater episode, and I think well-deserved. Mm. This film is a disaster. It <laughs> is, thankfully, 84 minutes long and includes about 25 minutes of padding with stuff like that Riveting Crackers discussion. Right. They also at some point get into the fact that, the family, that they had a miscarriage for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of weird kind of stuff like that in this film. The scenes run entirely too long. I don't know if they're trying to create these contemplative moments with our actors when really we all know what they're doing, Matt. I got to hit that 80-minute runtime to be considered a feature film or they're not going right. to get released. But I will say that the gore effects in this film by Rick Baker are fantastic. Yeah, they are. Particularly for the time, 1977. This thing is gross as all hell. The melting effects that this guy is basically coming apart is disgusting, and it is just top-shelf stuff. And I got to tell you, Matt, it's almost – I think it is. It's worth watching just to watch our our Steve guy just decomposing and melting as he goes from victim to victim, who I think mostly deserve to die. Mm. But still – the effects alone, great stuff. Was that enough for you to redeem watching this film? Or yeah, so, it's just that so bad that you just can never recommend it to anybody.
1: Yeah. So what's funny is, is I was as I'm watching this thing, I'm like, man, this seems like it should be a mystery science theater movie, and I and I looked it up, and I'm like, oh, well, there it is. So uh, I did not know that going into this. I have to agree with everything you said. It is. Amateurish. It has a micro budget. Um, I like how the hospital slash radiation center looks like it's taking place in some kind of industrial warehouse. And um, like literally, the hospital rooms on the outside are like shipping crates, which is <laughs> yes. just fantastic. Um, but like you said, the the creature effects and the gore effects are apps are actually really really good. I was impressed with how good all of that stuff looked. I think. One of the victims, there's a head that kind of goes floating down a river. And, like, it actually looks pretty pretty good um, for something that had, you know, a a $10 budget for the entire film. So I was really impressed with that. And I think because this is a Mystery Science Theater movie, even though I've never seen it, it was in that rarefied territory, especially for me, where it was so bad that I kind of enjoyed it. Like, Mm -hmm. it was just so incompetent that and it was so but so dead serious and trying so hard in its incompetence that it almost made it kind of endearing like oh you tried you're trying to make <laughs> this a good movie but it's it's just it's not and i i if you're if you like those kind of movies if you like it so bad it's good movies and you like those kind of cheesy things with some actually really good creature and gore effects i think this might be right up your alley and then turn around and watch Mystery Science Theater so you can laugh at it together.
0: Exactly. Really, it's, it's a gore effect in search of a film, really, is what <laughs> happens here. Like, I feel like that's what the idea they had first. And then they tried to build a movie around it and just failed wonderfully and miserably at the same mm-hmm. time. I feel like the film exists basically just to be a highlight reel for Rick Baker. Right? Like He's doing the, what interview for a new movie. He's like, oh, you did The Melting Man? Oh, that sucked. But that Melting <laughs> Man, dude, was awesome. Right? So I think that's really what this is, a calling card for Baker. And I got to tell right. you this, Matt. If any film is primed for a remake, is this. I mean, yeah. you could – I always say if you're going to remake a movie, do a bad one. Right. And you could remake this today with today's effects. It could be terrifying in the hands of the right director.
1: Right. I don't know. Pitch to Blumhouse. Jason Blum's always looking for something. We'll have to get on that
0: yeah uh and i don't know if you know too that the melting man here was the inspiration for uh what's his name there in robocop when it falls into the oh really sequester. was it
1: yeah oh okay very good very There's good, go. good I, I, so what's your favorite part of this i think the cracker discussion is up there for me mm-hmm. um but i think my favorite part is where the worker shows up at the power plant at the end <laughs> And just comes across a dead body. And he, he just seems completely nonplussed by it. Like, he's just, like, annoyed that he has to potentially clean it up. And then he just just, just decides to walk away.
0: Well, it's because it's not really a body at that point, right? It's just a collection of – it's just a pile of clothes and goo. Yeah. So, there's those damn kids playing along in the outside the factory by the railroad <laughs> tracks again, you know? And what are you going to do? So, there's a – maybe that's an ear. Could be – listen. And that final melting scene. Yeah. It's pretty. Whew. That is exceptionally well done. But uh, you could tell they basically spent all the money on the effects for this thing for the melting yeah. man. Every dime. Everything else is kind of duct taped together. Paper clips, everything else, right? The script, which is just dreadful. Uh, everything. The performance is, as you said, Matt, amateurish. It's a disaster. The incredible melting man, Matt, for me, is a D. Maybe even an F as a film, but those gore effects really it's a B plus. If mm-hmm. I have to Split it up. I would say D for the movie, B plus for the effects, but um it's a D movie. Where do you fall?
1: Yeah, so I think as an actual film, it's a D movie, but as a as a um is it so bad it's good or at least a kind of let's laugh at it kind of experience i think it slots right into that kind of uh you could do a marathon of these and this would fit right in um so i would give it a a b plus for if you're grading it on that particular curve so Mm -hmm. d for an actual film but like b if you're gonna B plus if you're gonna show like birdemic and and then slot this in as a palate cleanser before you move on to the room there you go i like that
0: idea what are your thoughts on the incredible melting man, which is really hard to track down? It's very currently only streaming on Paramount Plus. Uh, you can also get it through the Amazon thing. I may have accidentally spent five bucks from Paramount Plus. Oh boy, I'm well, not happy. Fly. Yeah, I'm not happy. Scream Factory <laughs> released a Blu-ray of this about three, four years ago, but it's now out of print, and it'll cost you like two hundred dollars if you want. Right.
1: Out. If you have the. Um... The, the subscription that also ran Epics, it's, it's streaming on that as well. If you actually have real cable, there you go.
0: Mm. Thank you, Matt. Mm-hmm. It's just an email feedback at the first All right, let's close out this monster episode of the first run as Matt and I are going to do another round of call it. Look at that.
1: Yeah, what about it? It's
0: a five pointed star.
1: Well, maybe the owners are from Texas. <laughs> Remember the Alamo. I beg your
0: pardon? Oh, he was just joking. Joking? I remember the Alimo. I saw it once in London, in Leicester Square.
1: She means in the cinema. That film with John Wayne. Oh yeah, of course.
0: Checkmate. Right, with Lawrence Harvey, and everybody dies in it. <laughs> Very bloody.
1: Bloody awful if you ask me. <laughs> Yeah, Gladys Tom. Did you hear the one about the rushing? Don't oh. you yeah. woman
0: unlike me speak? Ask him what the candles are for. You <laughs> we'll ask him. All right, let's finish oh, up today. No, no,
1: chance. It's a pentangle, a five-pointed star. It's used for
0: witchcraft. Loncini Jr. Universal Studios maintain that's the mark of the wolf man.
1: Oh, I see. And you want me to ask them if they're burning candles to ward off monsters? Right. <laughs> Wrong.
0: All right, Matt. So I'm doing an all Halloween horror edition of Call It. Okay. You just heard a clip from the classic American Werewolf in London by a truly just trash human being, John Landis. So let me ask you, Matt, what is the best horror comedy? between these two films? Is it Shaun of the Dead or Evil Dead Part 2? I'd say American Werewolf is the best. And if you think there's a film that is the best horror comedy, I'd like to hear what, what you think it is, if it's not American Werewolf. But if you had to choose between Shaun of the Dead or Evil Dead 2, what would you choose?
1: Um, I would have to go with Shaun of the Dead, I think. I think it's more confident in its comedy and it, it lands its jokes a little bit better. And now it's not as horrific it doesn't you know have as quite as much gore um but it just seems like a more solid movie it's less camp more more uh like a real kind of effort as far as comedy goes is the horror element undercut
0: like i think that's the problem too is a lot of times why i think american world was so successful is that it's actually very scary at times it's still funny where in shawn of the dead i don't know if it's ever really scary
1: yeah, it's not really scary. In fact, I wouldn't even consider it a horror film. But the problem is is that I don't find Evil Dead very particularly scary either. Evil Dead yeah. 2 particularly scary just because of the kind of over-the-top slapstick of it, which kind of really undercuts a lot of the the horror elements.
0: Yeah, that's why I think I prefer um, the first Evil Dead
1: mm. over Evil Dead Part 2.
0: So you would go Sean, huh? I would, yeah. I would probably go Evil Dead 2 because I think it has more of a horror element than Sean of the Dead does but probably not by much.
1: Okay. Fair enough. Do you have a favorite horror comedy of all time? (laughs) boy. Um, of all time, I guess it would be American werewolf in London, but see, it's such a good horror film, a good werewolf film, which is so hard to come by. I Mm. barely consider it a comedy. Um, I just kind of consider it a, a, uh, horror film with a few jokes in it. Fair enough. What do you got? Yeah. All right, so we just got done talking about dune and i mentioned fade Routha, who is a big villainous character in uh the dune film so he was played by sting in the first one or in the, the lynch version he was supposed to be played by mick jagger and the jodorowsky one so there are some questions around who the next one should be so call it should fade Routha be played by harry styles or Bill Skarsgård, which would connect to the who plays the Baron, his father.
0: Well, I would go Skarsgård all the way. I'm not mm. up for this, you know, trick casting by having another musician play the uh, thing with Harry Styles. No, thank you. I'm, I'll, I'll pass. Unless, of course, it was a young David Bowie.
1: Either way. <laughs> well, I guess you know, as good as surprisingly good as Harry Styles was in Dunkirk, I would go with Skarsgård too. Although that also makes me wish, since there are so many Skarsgård, that they would have used one of his older brothers to be uh, play the Bautista role in The Beast. Mm, that's true. I feel like would that, was a miss- that would have missed opportunity to have either Alexander Skarsgård or the other one who played Floki on that show. But missed opportunities. Oh, well. Eh, what are you going to do?
0: All right, Matt, let me ask you. These, these two franchises, well, I think these are B-level horror franchises all Mm -hmm. right who would you choose phantasm or chucky oh gosh um so i think both of them have a couple really great films with a bunch of bad ones
1: yeah i think i go with phantasm just because i like how weird it is Mm -hmm. um and i think i like the kind of mental gymnastics that 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 guy obviously had to go through and to kind of put this thing together whereas chucky it works way better than it has any right to. And I I think there are some really good entries in that, but I guess if I had to choose one, I would go with Phantasm because it just feels like there's a lot more there.
0: Yeah, I'm actually the same place. I think there's a much more inventive and uh, creative series of films, Phantasm. In fact, I just bought that set a while back. I still haven't really dug into it yet. I got to start watching those movies. But still, I've watched all the Chucky films. And I think the ones with Jennifer Tilly and when they have the kid, I think they're actually pretty funny. Mm-hmm. They're a lot of fun. But when it comes to horror franchise, I think Phantasm is, like you said, a much more interesting experience uh, than the Chucky films. So mm-hmm. yeah, I would go Phantasm too. All
1: right. Well, that's an interesting question that you asked because I my next one is is basically this is this is my last one, but it's like four questions in one. So I, I think it's still okay. So I was doing some research. I was looking around to try and kind of spark the creativity. And Slash Film has been running a kind of like a bracket on uh, horror franchises Mm -hmm. and they're at their quarterfinals now so i want to give you what the fans have chosen so far to be in this quarterfinals bracket and and get get which ones you have as far as in the call it universe where one has to go away completely all All right right? yep all right so the first up is the alien franchise versus the evil dead now these are the actual rankings as the fans have shown them as the bracket has gone out
0: oh evil dead hands down i think I think it, I think so. I think the the two alien films are classics. And you can hear me talk about them along with Lady Wan in a Madden one episode on Screen Run mm-hmm. right now. Exactly. But I think the affection I have for Evil Dead uh, knows no bounds. And yeah, I don't know. I may be talking about that a little bit in my next one. So I'll just say Evil Dead for that one. <laughs> okay. What's next?
1: All right. The next one is, I think, a bit a, a big layup. Halloween versus Scream.
0: Oh, Halloween. Yeah. I, I don't. There's a. I think that's an age thing. There's a big scream contingent on like film Twitter, but mm-hmm. I think those are kids that grew up with that series. Uh, I really only like the first one. The second one's okay. And after that, uh, actually, from what I'd the third one's supposed to be better than the second one, though I haven't watched them since it came out in the theaters. Okay. So I'm not sure. But, and Halloween's got some stinkers. Woo! But sheer force of will with all the films they have. Plus, there is no Halloween 3 in the Scream franchise.
1: <laughs> it's very true. The Nightmare on Elm Street franchise versus the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. I <laughs> uh, See, this one was really tough for me because I think in both instances, the only one that I truly like is the first one. Of both of those franchises. Yeah. I, I think I think personally, as much as I really like the first Nightmare on Elm Street and how much I, how genuinely scary I find it, I personally think I would have to go with Texas Chainsaw because it is a incredibly effective still to this very day.
0: Yeah, I think I'm the same way. I mean, two is kind of fun. It's a campy horror film, TCM2. The rest of them are not good. Nightmare on Elm Street, I've never been a big Freddy fan. The first one, actually, I just rewatched the first one a couple days ago, and I watched part two last night. And I started to watch part three. But those films, I've never really had any pull for me outside of the first one, too. And like you said, I agree with you. The first Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen. So I'd have Mm -hmm. to go with that.
1: All right. And then the last one would be an easy choice for me. Um, Friday the 13th series versus the Night of the Living Dead universe.
0: That's tough for me. Cuz I'm a Jason guy out of all of them. Mm-hmm. Jason's my favorite. But Romero is not a living dead films. Even the bad ones are really good. Even you know like uh um, what is it? Land of the Dead. Right. It's still good. In fact, I just picked it up on Blu-ray for 5 bucks cuz I only had it on DVD. Oh, nice. Um Wow, I'm going to go Romero. I'm going to go zombie. What about you? <laughs>
1: yeah i'm gonna go romero as well um i was i'm honestly i'm not afraid to admit it i'm never i was never a really big fan of the friday the 13th series i thought they were always kind of cheesy mm-hmm. um and they were very of their time i didn't think they were particularly good i mean so i think not the living dead series there are some absolute stone cold classics in it so i think that's really the only choice and honestly i'm really surprised you went with evil dead considering alien you I will and I quote Crispy Ascalzo from Screen Run, yeah. a perfect film. Um yeah. and I personally think that is a perfect film and the sequel Aliens is a perfect film, which you just can't even I just can't say that about Evil Dead. So I'll talk about we'll talk about that in a second.
0: My question okay. for you: I have a question. What do you thought about what about Dead Alive? Peter Jackson's film with um, was that be a horror comedy? I'm just curious if you've
1: seen Dead Alive. And what I haven't about. seen Dead Alive. It's one uh, that I've been meaning to catch up with, but I've never. I just haven't gotten around to it.
0: I don't think it's had a domestic release here on Blu-ray
1: yet. I think you can probably now, buy it online, do, but didn't he do another one called Bad Taste? Yeah, that was
0: before that. That was like a sci-fi, basically just gross-out movie. Okay, um, I have that digitally. I've never watched it.
1: Okay. I've never watched it either.
0: All right. Well, I guess it comes down to mind then, Matt, my final one, which is what is the best horror franchise of all time? So I guess if you go through your bracket, where are you going to end up?
1: See, this is tough because a lot of these, the problem with horror franchises is that they're just as a, there's so many bad entries in them. For me, I'm probably going to come down to Alien just because those first two films are just so, so good. Mm -hmm. But I think if you're looking at that list, I guess and I never would have thought of this on my own. I guess I'd have to say Night of the Living Dead because of all of those they have the most the, the most solid entries. Like Night of the Living Dead is fantastic, Dawn of the Dead is fantastic, Day of the Dead is still pretty good. I think for overall quality it's it's the highest bar out of all of them.
0: And that's where I come down with uh Evil Dead. Oh, really? I think that's the best horror franchise. There isn't a weak film in the bunch. Not a, not even a, not even one that's just okay. They're all really good. The first Evil Dead is a classic, and maybe there may be some nostalgia bias on my part as mm-hmm. the Evil Dead was one of my big four first forays into horror. Yeah, but I love those films. Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two are fantastic. Army of Darkness is a different animal altogether. And is just a lot of fun. And kind of gave us who the Bruce Campbell that everybody knows and loves. Yeah. And then the Fidi Alvarez pseudo-remake slash sequel, Evil Dead, is one of the best horror films um, of that decade. And it's really grown in prestige since it first came out. And uh, it is exceptionally well done. And I will admit, I have only seen the first season of the show. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I need to catch up with that still. But even that, I liked that first season a lot. I thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, I think in the that, end, I probably got to go Evil Dead for me.
1: That, that makes sense. I think you have to be of a certain bent to like Evil Dead. It's, it's not for everybody. So, but I mean, the people who like Evil Dead really, really love Evil Dead. So, mm-hmm. I guess I can't begrudge that for you. Um, Thanks. Yeah. I know it's big of me. Um, you never have you, I did tell you this, did you ever catch up with? I know we didn't like the the series as a, the first season anyway, but the first oh. episode of the new season of Creepshow is Evil Dead.
0: Yes, I did like that.
1: Oh, you did watch the first one?
0: I did. I did watch okay. that. I did enjoy it. I did enjoy the nods with Ted Raimi too mm-hmm. as well. But um, yeah, no, I liked it a lot. It was fun. I still got to okay. watch this. It's a lot we got to watch. Oh, God. It never ends. Speaking of which, next week, is a big one, right? It's going to be uh, Last Night in Soho, Edgar yep. Wright's new films. And I think it's safe to say we are Edgar Wright stands over here. <laughs> but also Antlers, Matt, is yes. coming out. And our Body Horror Marathon wraps with Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, mm-hmm. which I bought uh, as, as part of the last uh, Shout Factory sale on Amazon because I've been wanting to get it for a long time. It was on sale for like 12 bucks. Nice. So I'm like, I can't go wrong buying Cronenberg. So there you go. It's going to be a big show next week, too. I'm looking forward to Antlers for a while. Supposedly, as has one of the best creature designs in years. That's what I've been hearing. So I'll have to check that out.
1: Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic about it. I'm pretty excited.
0: In the meantime, you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Do a search for The First Run. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Eventually, you will find us. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help other people find the show, and we'll read it on the air. And I think that's uh, going to be it this week, man. So why don't we go ahead, take an extended break, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Get vaccinated. We love you. Happy Halloween. Well, what time are you going to get here?
1: About 1,600 hours. I hope the hell you found it by then.
0: Goodbye. Damn it. So Dune Madass Dune Madass.
1: <laughs> You're on your A game for our super long Absolutely. episode.